Hi, this is Paul, and pretty much everybody here will recognize this guy. Maybe we should start with the 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 strangeness, the strange turns that our lives have taken on social media. Yeah. I looked it up, and and I think our first conversation was was around four years ago. In my little corner of the corner, you know, there's been drama recently. And I think John Van Donk nailed it right in terms of a define the relationship moment for a lot of people. We're talking to these, we're talking to these random people online. We're building relationships. I remember I was I had been dating my wife for, you know, a couple of months and I got to a point and you know I had to define the relationship conversation with her. What do we have and where are we going? Before YouTube you know, the, the, I remember the Buddhism and cognitive science recordings yeah. where the sound yeah. was terrible. And yeah. but, but before your own rise on YouTube, you, you were embedded in a university. You were yes. you were a favorite professor. You had you know you had a you had a degree of academic success, and I'd say success as a university professor. Now, four years into this social media thing, what have you learned, and what has been instrumental in terms of making some of the decisions that you've made i well i i there's things i don't know if, I, I guess i learned them but i sort of set myself to them i set myself from the very beginning when i entered this that i would always keep one foot firmly planted in the science um because i think i've watched people here get disconnected from the community that can correct them and uh, i think that's problematic and so uh, interestingly enough, I was wondering what would happen if uh, my online, I don't know what to call it, career, <laughs> took off, how that would interact with my academic career. And to my surprise, it has quite significantly increased my academic career. The number of publications, the number of collaborations I've been doing, quantity and quality has gone up significantly. And even last year, the University of Toronto formally acknowledged in my, we get a yearly review, merit review and stuff like that, that my online work was good and significant and valuable. Well, they were watching to see if I would go the way some other people who rose in social media would go. And when they when it became clear, I wasn't trying to attack or abandon my academic things go well. I'm the director now of the Cognitive Science Program, and sounds like they want me to do that again. And although that's not yet official so so and that has been a that has been a welcome surprise because i wanted that and it turned out that wasn't an unrealistic hope it turns out that that is doable and so i'm offering i suppose myself as evidence that it is possible to pursue an online presence career whatever we don't quite have the right word for it while maintaining a proper connection to the you know an, another world a, a scientific world a world that is more oriented towards truth seeking than fame seeking if i can put it that way although of course the academic world is also beset by its own sort of petty fame seeking it was good by the way to be out of that into an, a wider arena of of that because when you're back inside the politics if all you see is the politics it can wear on you right but because i get to see this wider arena that has tsunamis <laughs> mm -hmm. as opposed to the ripples that right and so I, I i i have a much more a humorous relationship to the politics the and 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 and, and, the, and the climbing that's going on within the academic world and you know and not to be too self 
righteous. It's also because I know there's a certain amount of liberation. I, I mean, I could shut down my entire academic career and make a living now elsewise, right? And so to be fair and honest, that also gives me a certain amount of liberty. I'm doing it now more because I want to than because I have to, and that changes your whole stance. So that's just been a big... Um, I had hoped for that. I had worked towards that, and it came to fruition in a way that I think is very helpful. Very early on, I just for pra initially practical reasons, I set up a not-for-profit, the Verveki Foundation. It was just largely so the money that was getting coming to me, I could put it aside without having to pay income tax. I would only have to pay non-for-profit tax, which in Canada, I imagine the United States is the same. It's much, much smaller. That way, I was able to accrue enough funds for after Socrates and things like that. But then what happened is, kind of a godsend, Ryan Barton came to me and said, your work saved my life, transformed my relationship, helped save my marriage. He was saying all these things. I may be, I can't, I know one of my roommates his words verbatim. I'm just trying to convey the spirit. He was extremely grateful. And we can talk about trying to manage that in a bit. But he said, I want to help. And what I do is I build organizations. My business is a business that builds organizations. I want to build your Verveki Foundation into a real organization. And so he actually came to Toronto. He lives in the United States. I forget where. I think it's near Carolina, North Carolina, I think. He knew Duke. I, when I went to Duke and I came back with the Duke hat, he said, oh, yeah, he knew that. So he came up here. We 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 sat in a hotel room, like a, a conference room, for six hours, and we banged it out. And he said, "What do you want?" And uh, I said, "I don't want to be Aragorn. I want to be Gandalf." And he said, "Right." And I said, "I want to build this organization, not just to grow, but to more importantly, grow grow virtuously and grow with virtuosity." And and and, and I won't. Nobody will be allowed into the to this who does not explicitly. And after being vetted, commit to that. And so he started building this, and he started building. And now the Verveki Foundation, I mean, Chris now works for it full-time. He's the executive director, Christopher Master Pietro. Tyler Barrett is on as, you know, permanent part-time as our director of programs. He's helped build up an entire platform, Awaken to Meaning, where people can go and they can drop in with Rick Repetti and do meditation. They can do the dialectic and the dialogos intensive. Like, we've got all this... All the offerings are there. He's running all of that. We have Ethan Say, who is, he's in charge of Patreon and also helping out with so much. He's also full, he's permanently full-time, part-time. And then we also have a, an ongoing contract, but very close relationship with Eric Foster from Upfire. And so what's happening is it's, I mean, unless and unless you're psychotic, or a, a raving narcissist, you actually, some part of you wants this and you don't even realize it. It's grown beyond my grasp. Yeah. And that's very hard for an academic because we are used to micromanaging every aspect of our work. And it's grown beyond my grasp. And because these are beautiful people that I are worthy of trust, it has grown. And there's projects going. So I, I retain absolute veto rights over everything. But there's many projects that I'm 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 supervising them and to some degree inspiring them from like thirty thousand feet. I'm not down here, and it. So that's been like amazing, and what's happened is because there's beyond the mandate of building up an organization that's in service to others, um, I have made it a continual that these people are supposed to help 
keep me at arm's length from the money and the reputation. We're supposed to share credit. They're supposed to watch, right? And that's been tremendously helpful for me. So I've learned, I'd hoped, sorry, this is all very optimistic, which is unusual for me. This was, I'd hoped that to build something like that, that would both have an outward and inward facing of virtue and virtuosity. And lo and behold, that seems to be the case. And so it, that has protected me to, I mean, not only do they take a lot of load off my plate and, and they do it with, 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 with grace, <laughs> right? They also just, I don't know what to say. They protect me from myself mm. <laughs> in, or, or they're in, in, not to the degree you and I were talking before off camera, but not to the degree that Sara does. But they reliably bring out the better in me, and they they have, and, and lovingly so. And I, I I don't know. I just yeah, I'm grateful. They bring out the best in me, and they've committed themselves to that. And so I've learned that a couple of things that I hoped would work do work, and seem to be helping and making a difference. And that's also helped with the negative side, the exposure. That's been mitigated by this. They are inter they've all met Sara. They came here a few weeks ago in Toronto. We stayed at her place. They're sub deeply supportive of my relationship to her, to my kids. I feel very privileged in the good sense of the word, not in the woke sense. I feel very privileged. I feel, like I said, it, it, it's not completely luck. I tried to bring this about, but it has exceeded my expectations and my fears. And so that's been good. I'm still dealing with the, the, the parasociality. It happens more frequently, especially at the university. Some students come to the university because I'm there. And they, I, nothing creepy. Well, one or two creepy. I get, I, I, I get creepy emails from people who are carrying on long conversations with me. I'm not replying or acknowledging their email, but they, they somehow think I'm answering them. And but that not too many. You're answering them in your videos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that. And but the but when I meet them face to face, and 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 sorrow is very helpful about that because uh, initially my my response when people would come up because of my concerns and because also the social phobia, I would try and put push people away yeah. and get away as soon as possible. And she said. She didn't use this words, but this is how it sort of came out. I was like, John, you're all about religio and connectedness. This is a moment of deep connection for these people, and yeah. you're denying it to them. You shouldn't be doing that. You're yeah. you're not practicing what you preach. Yeah. And I went, oh, you're right. And she said, I get your concern. You don't want to be consumptive of this. So she said, act as if somebody came up and you and them played some beautiful music together, and you enjoyed it together, and then it was done and the music was over and they leave. And I went, okay. And I've been trying to put that into practice, and that has been extremely helpful. It gives people, sorry, even saying this sounds wrong, but it gives people their moment. Mm -hmm. That sounds so, that sounds, uh, you know, but then, nevertheless, it gives people their moment. And yet, but it, it it's a framing that prevents me from like, oh, because yeah, everybody has that. And if, if somebody says they don't have that, I, I, I don't believe them. Yeah. There's a part of you, there's that primate part that goes, whoa, ooh, isn't that tasty? And you gotta, you gotta just, 
Like if you fight it, it get well, it's like in meditation. You don't fight, you don't feed your monkey mind. You just, oh, there it is. Yeah. It's over there. Right. And it just jumps and then fades. And you you try to try to stay with that. And so that's been interesting. And then one more thing, and, and I don't talk about this with everybody. I talk about this a lot with the Verveki Foundation people, and they've been very supportive of it. But this next series that I'm working on, this is going to be unlike anything I've done before. So I'm going to ask in friendship that you allow me some language that might be a little bit overblown. And I, I understand it is, but I'm trying to use it to try, because I'm, I don't really know the, the language to use. I'm going through some process of preparation, purification. Again, I don't know. It's calling me much deeper than just the way I've prepared for a course. This is a much more pr profound. And the because I'm going to be going to these locations and being there and right and right. I'm talking about the philosophical Silk Road. It has, and again, I, I don't, I'm not intending to be sacrilegious, but it's becoming, it's taking on, and the closest word I can come to this, it's like a pilgrimage for me. That's the that's the language that's coming to mind for me. And I don't mean to be anything, I'm not trying to be insulting. You know that, I, you know that, I'm not. I'm just trying to, this is how it's unfolding for me. And, and so this is having, and I mean, I keep doing all my work. In fact, I'm publishing more than I ever have. And really, I think, some some of my best work. A lot of people are thinking that it's happening right now, which is, I'm just happy about that. But the amount of work I'm putting in every day towards this other project is already. And then, you know, and then I'll have the summer, and then I have sabbatical, and so it's it's not obsession. I've had an obsession before. That's not the right word. So that's also been happening very significantly, and part of it is I feel called to try and use this medium in a very different way this is i'm gonna i'm trying to create a new genre well we me and the foundation it, like this is going to be presented at multiple levels see how this is how you've affected me paul so at the right there'll be the meso level the in-between level and it'll be like a series kind of like a, you know after combining aspects of after socrates and awakening but also on location and there'll be music and animation and i might even talk like if i'm thinking about whitehead i might talk to an animated form of whitehead and all that sort of stuff and but also going through it and the and the geo philosophy and the atmosphere and the music and also me just undergoing it i'm going to try and walk a significant you know amount when i when i go to these various places and then, you know, Chris will be there at various times and he'll be sort of like a father confessor. What's like, just what's happening to you, John, in this, right? So, and, and that'll be the mezzo level. And then if I start talking about things, instead of always trying to present the full complex academic argument, I'll do it much more gesturally at this level. But then I'm going to make a whole bunch of more academic video essays for all of these topics and you can drill down and then you can drill down beneath them and there'll be all this literature. And right now the we have a, our volunteers, we have a volunteer organization for uh, the Revolution Foundation called the Codex, and they're building from like somebody in grade 10 to high school, undergrad, graduate, right? Multiple levels of access to all of my information, kind of like an extended multi-level glossary. And that will be down there at that. And that'll sort of, every level will have sort of a level you can access the material at. And so there's this, there's this micro level there's a meso level. And then at the top, we're going to try and extract and do extra filming and draw like together, like just a two hour kind of movie documentary that has much more narrative structure to it to give people who just want that 
And the idea is people will be able to move through this as they wish, multiple levels of access, multiple multiple contacts to different kinds of people at every level. And so part of it is not only not only is this as a pilgrimage, it's I feel a tremendous responsibility because you and I, I'm sorry, I'm talking a long time, but this was a deep question. You and I have both been wrestling with the ambivalence of this medium, of these media, right? I, I've now, I will now, not, I will, I will not use Twitter for anything other than thanking people and making announcements. Right? I refuse. <laughs> I, 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 will, I, will, I refuse. And people try to call me out into political stuff. Just, there's <laughs> no point. There is no point. There, this, you, we're, we're act, you're acting, you're pretending like we could have a, a reasonable conversation about this, and that is impossible in this medium. So yeah. I just refuse. Yeah. So I'm trying to see if it's possible to that the hyper technology that's now available in these media to deal with the access problem at multiple levels and see what kind of social dynamical system grows by offering something at a multi-level ongoing way. And of course, it'll keep running. The bottom level will keep being added to, will be living. And that's, so that's the intent. Now, the final thing, which will probably maybe perhaps strike you as sacrilegious, but that all of that is because, and this came up in the the conversation, you might have, I know you saw it with Daniel Schmachtenberger, you know, yeah. Chris, it's come up in many conversations. Yeah. I, and I talked about this with Jordan, Jordan Peterson, yeah. I think there's an advent of the sacred happening right now. And the point of this, in, in response to the meaning crisis, and the point of the philosophical Silk Road is to make myself, put myself in service to this. I'm Again, I'm not trying to found a religion, and thank you for reminding people that I'm not doing that. But I do want to put myself in service of it, be an embodied vehicle, try to just give people something by which they can participate with. What would that look like to try and enter into a relationship with that? And that's what I'm trying to do. And I think, right, nobody lives on the Silk Road. Everybody should go back to their home where there's the much detailed, thick description of the sacred. But the Silk Road should have a thinner. I'm using, I'm, I'm using, I'm using, what's his name? Schellingberg in his book, where he talks about thick and thin and strong and weak. The Silk Road should be thin, is it should go for what is most shareable, but it should nevertheless be nevertheless strong, be oriented towards real transcendence, ultimacy. And that way everybody can travel on the Silk Road and return to their homes or maybe move to a different home, right? And that's the intent. Sorry, that was a long, long answer, but I'm sorry. You are you are more than just somebody I'm talking to. And so much more came out. Well, no, John, and I, I, we're here to we're here to listen to you and but but it it's interesting some of the ways in which your silk road reminds me of i don't know if you're familiar with this <clears throat> image from cs lewis in mere christianity he was raised in belfast lewis is irish northern ireland he's raised in belfast with obviously this deep tension between the, the Protestant Catholic tension. His mother dies when he's six years old and his father 
is just completely unprepared how to the mother was the emotional center of the home right. father doesn't know how to handle these boys lewis you know throws away religion you know as a, as a young man very common story of course goes off to the first world war has exactly the right kind of wound to save him so he has to sit out most of the war with his with his injury has you know, is is educated by a a hard bitten Scottish atheist, <laughs> and and then of course in at Oxford via Tolkien and Dyson and others embraces Christianity, embraces the mythos, and sees Christianity as the true myth. But then of course he's going to have to deal with the the ongoing civil war within Christianity that the West had been fighting, you know, forever. And, and so then comes up, reappropriates a term mere Christianity and tries to, during World War II when England tries to present that to a radio audience. And I think there's, you know, because in many ways, who would have thought everything you know of C.S. Lewis, who, who would have thought he would be a hit on the radio? And and then also, I mean, Lewis was a Lewis was a very strange man in many ways. He never learned to drive. You know, he he had a. There's a there are many questions about his his sex life prior to his late in life marriage to Joy Davidman. There's a ton of stuff there, but he 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 puts on the front burner of the church, this image of mere Christianity. And he he basically used a very similar image to what you did of the Silk Road. Mm. That he said, you know, I want to present you mere Christianity, which is the hallway. And off of the hallway are rooms. You don't live in the hallway. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. I should, I'm going to get this book. Wow. Uh, it, <laughs> okay. I, I didn't know that. That's, Yeah. Sorry for interrupting. It's just my enthusiasm. Go ahead. Yeah, no. And well, when you were talking about it, it it really struck me the similarity because he said, you know, in the rooms, of course, this is Lewis, you know, L L Lewis over at Oxford, there are fireplaces and there are pints and there are pipes and, you know, yeah. there are warm conversations in the room. And that's where, you know, the Catholics and the Protestants and all the different kinds of Protestants, that, that's where you go to, you live in the room, you don't live in the hallway. So, but you need the hallway, or you won't meet other people, right? Well, that's, that's right. His point. That's his well, point. I get it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, one of the big, you know, when when you know when I looked at your conversation you just had with Jordan, I, I just want to make a point about Jordan too, just briefly in terms of that the religio point that you made and the attention economy. So, of course, for most of us, just watching Jordan via you know this this strange medium that we've been sharing. You know, as, as you well learn once you indulge in this medium, that people screens <laughs> screens are not just for receiving; they're very much also for projection. And you you learn yeah. that Rorschach <laughs> like projections for sure. Yeah. Yes, and but one of the things one of the things that Jordan I, I've never seen anyone do the way he does is these little meet and greets after his talks. And you've probably you know because I. 
you know, when I first time Jordan had one of these things in Sacramento, somebody who'd been coming to my meetup said, oh, I want you to meet Jordan. So they they paid for my higher price ticket to do the meet and greet. And I did that actually with another friend from the meetup. And and I, as a as a minister, often in our tradition, after you preach the sermon, you stand at the exit door of the church and you shake people's hands. And so people have heard your sermon, especially if you're a guest preacher, you don't know any of these people and you just have like a five second interchange. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. people pause and they might have a little bit of feedback for your sermon or, or something like that. And so Jordan has this line that people have paid like $150 for 45 seconds with him or something. And, you know, I, I, I went into that with deep cynicism. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. But. One of the one of the things, and myself and another friend of mine who teaches who teaches psychology at a local junior college here, I have never seen anybody work a line like Jordan because he can, in that 45 seconds, he has this real strange way of making you feel like you're the only person in the world. Yeah, yeah. So they, that was said of Socrates. That yeah. It, it's a it's I've I had never seen and my friend who was also watching, I had never seen anybody work a lot. And it's 150 people. You know, I'm just thinking, but anyway, so that so man, to Sarah's man, point, the man that's is a, gifted. The man that's is a gifted. gift, and that's a skill. Yeah. To, because all and and again, part of what this strange medium does is just sort of explode your Dunbar number. It does. Because the people are projecting on you and and some of some of the blessings that they are receiving through the screen, you have to have the projection going in order for that healing to take place. Yeah, that moment. At that moment. And so this this ability to and and you, you deal with this as a minister too, because what happens is I'm sure you have this as a university professor, student comes into the classroom. And and I, you wouldn't be the professor that you are if your lectures didn't have a valence beyond. Oh, I'm just here to get the grade. It it it, it and you have to right if 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 you want to do if you want to get them to consider the possibility of an education beyond an instrumental attitude, you have to have that an aspect of of charismatic for lack of a better word performance in what you're doing sincere authentic yeah no no, no pretense but yeah i agree and and so i mean part of the trick as a pastor what you do is let's say someone comes into the church and in a protestant church i think it's it's more difficult because in a i would imagine in a more sacramental church the focus is on the eucharist or the focus is on the liturgy yeah, in a yeah. Protestant church, the focus is on the sermon, and you are the preacher of the sermon. And so yeah. people immediately sort of first come to you and think, oh, here is my guru. I've been the spark that how Protestant this media is, this medium is, yes. right? It's like at the center is the guy, usually the guy for all yep. the problems associated with that, usually the guy talking. And yeah, yeah. Just. We don't even realize that, right? Nope. How 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 much it's insinuated into the medium. Go ahead. Yeah. No, and then, but then you have as being the guy, and if you actually care about the people out there, now suddenly there is a weight of responsibility. Yeah, and like Sarah said, you can't just push them back. No. That's that's not, you know, there's 
there, there's an asymmetry here that you certainly feel that they might not feel. They sort of know it. Many of them will come up and say, they'll sort of do some framing where they they will acknowledge the asymmetry, but then they'll nevertheless enact the moment. Right. And and they can't help it. And it isn't, it isn't necessarily inappropriate because- No, it, I don't think it is. No, it bears witness to- it bears witness to a transformation. It bears witness to something that also needs to be somehow there. There has to be a space. There has to be there has to be something where that can be because that's immediately what I saw with Jordan when I saw what was happening around him at first was that I thought that on one hand, this is an amazing thing because people are clearly being transformed all over the place but they need a place to go because mm -hmm. jordan can't do that for them yeah and exactly. and they need you know this is i think part of why i mean jonathan and i have been very much you know go to church because yeah. if you've if something has happened you you can't live on the silk road you can't live in the hallway you need to find a room and that room has to somehow be connected because the other people in that room need you know, you're going, there's going to be others that have had not exactly the same thing, but an analogous thing, a thing that, and, and there's going to need to be some kind of community. I agree. And, you know, it's something that, you know, I did, I did this German event with Thomas Steininger, who, you know, has very much followed your work. Yeah. Thomas and I are going to do a, a series together on Filler's book, Neoplatonism, Heidegger, and the history of being relation as ontological ground. Yeah. And he mentioned something that you had mentioned before, and it's so funny how you hear these things, and it isn't until you hear something a number of times that it sort yeah. of gets through my thick skull. But the <laughs> but this Buddhist idea, and I, I don't even I didn't I don't say the word right, but somehow the sangha is the the guru is this what, what is that phrase? The, the basically basically the idea that the next the next the next guru or the next enlightened one will be the community. Oh, Thich Nhat Hong, the next Buddha is the Sangha. Yes, that's it. That's it. Yeah, and, I, I quote and, that a lot. Well, and I think about that in this case because we we Buddhas on the screen here, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, are are insufficient, and the and the well, the the arena that these screens create. There, there has to be something. There has to be a community, an ecclesia. You have, be, you have to be very careful about that ecclesia. So we are even very careful on awaken to meaning. We do not claim to be building a community. We, 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 we say we are a dojo, where people come and practice, and yeah. they may form communities out of this, or maybe they will go back to a community they already exist in. We're not. I'm very aware of that point you're making. And yeah. we cannot take on the deep responsibility that you, for example, take on in being a pastor for a church. We don't have anybody who has either the training or the time and probably the talent to do that kind of community building. So we do not pretend to be doing that. And we make a very clear message to people. This is dojo. I, sometimes communities form around a dojo, but typically a dojo has got a different feel to it. Hmm. Right? You know what a dojo is. It's like yeah. Yeah, right. And so that's what we we're offering. And we make a very clear distinction. And, and we welcome people to form communities or belong to their communities or what. But we, 
we're very careful to not offer that. It's like we're on the, uh, that's the, I'm thinking of Tillich's tonos, the between participation and individuation. And on the individuation side, we make it very clear that we are not offering therapy. We have already a bank of, you know, properly accredited clinical psychologists, therapists who will be there if therapeutic needs arise, and then we will refer you to them. But we will not offer therapy, and we will not, we are not your community. We are a place, right, where you come and do this practice because we do, we cannot, we do not have the time, talent, right, or training to do either one of these things. And so we try to be very, very clear with people about that because that also would, because people not only project onto individuals, the Buddhas, they also project onto places, even virtual places, right? Oh, yeah. And you have to be really, really careful about that. So we are trying to be very responsible to that responsibility and, and delineate it very clearly. And this also helps to prevent that weird and often toxic bleed between the person and the place and the projections that help that often spins people out in a lot of ways. So we're trying to be very, very careful about that. Take that point you've made. I'm just indicating, I think that's an important point and we're trying to take it, we're trying to respond to it with, with, with we, we hope very careful discernment. I think that raises the crisis of domicide in our world. Yes. Because churches, um, you know, it's no, it's no secret that, that in many places, well, at least in, in the West, particularly, and and more so in Canada than the United States, um, I mean, churches are struggling and closing, and but nothing is replacing them. That's exactly that's well, that's exactly right, and and so this, and and even therapy, therapy is, isn't fellowship. Exactly, Sorry, that's, that, that's a slogan, right? <laughs> therapy isn't fellowship. Right. That's not. And 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 friendship for all of the its goodness is not fellowship. Right. I've been, I've been trying to make this point. And again, our because of right, the domicile you're talking about. Right. And also the, the just the, the the loneliness epidemic, all of these, all of these we're losing. Right. We're losing the, the, the nuance. We're losing the ability to uh, appropriately distinguish between these things and therefore appropriately pursue them. And, and this comes out in the parasocial relationships with people that because of this kind of thing. Sorry, I just wanted to introduce. No, no, no. But that's but that's. And so I, you know, I as a pastor and, you know, one of the things that I'll, I'll often, you know, remind people is are the differences between, let's say, a pastor and a therapist. Yes. With a therapist, you go into this, usually you go into this generic office room <laughs> in a strip mall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you sit in a little box and the therapist has, by design, probably no relationship with anybody you are in relationship with. In fact, they're usually not allowed to treat you if they do. Exactly. And and so there and and there there's a reason and a purpose and a good reason and purpose for for this isolation, but that but that and and yeah. a pastor is a very different thing. Yes, because a pastor is intentionally in relationship with many of the people you are in relationship with. Yep, and so 
you know, one of the things when, you know, when you go through, when many clergy go through seminary, one of the things that they try to really hammer into the clergy is you are not a therapist because so much psychology tends to bleed into the clergy because this is, has so much power in the culture. And so then, you know, I, so, so then I, again, I look at, you know, that's part of the reason that we I've been working on estuary because estuary is estuary for us is at least an attempt to give people a starting place at a community, which, you know, I know there's tension within, you know, with my conversations with churches with respect to estuary. I always say that estuary is church adjacent because sounds fine to me. Well, it, it, it it's difficult. It's difficult because the dynamics that will happen in estuary are similar to the dynamics that happen in church. And I've now started doing I've now started an estuary group actually on Sunday morning before our worship service, partly to try to help knit, re-knit together some of the people of church, because churches, well, part of what I want to talk to you about today is fundamentalism. Yes. Because I noted, you know, I noted in your conversation with Elizabeth Oldfield on the Sacred Podcast. What a wonderful conversation. That was a wonderful conversation. She's an amazing lady. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking to her later this week. So I'm Lucky really you. looking forward Please to that. Please say hi for me. I'd, I'd love to talk to her again. I will. I will. I'm I'm really I don't I don't generally go out and ask for conversations, at least for people I don't know. But also and, and a lot of people don't understand this because that's sort of the the ritual of YouTube that you you have conversations with other people that other people are watching. And so you you then sort of have this you have virtual, you have on screen one or two conversation, virtual relationships with other people. And that becomes this thin facsimile for relationship that people sort of parasitically indulge in. Yeah. The lines between the proper lines between family, friendship and fellowship get blurred, but that also means the relationships get confused. Yeah. And that's very problematic. So you were mentioning something about fundamentalism. Well, you had, you had, you had, you had made a comment and I know, None of us can be held to any of the comments that we make in all of these conversations. But you had, you had said something very tender and loving about your mother, and yeah. and you had mentioned, you had mentioned fundamentalism in that context. And what that what that provoked for me was, I've always had a degree of, especially after nine eleven, fundamentalists sort of became proxies for for evil the last thing you want to be is a fundamentalist of any stripe and it was sort of right. islamist fundamentalists christian fundamentalists they sort of yeah. in certain yeah. narrative become the evil people and i of course have in a the christian reformed church is sort of a tweener denomination in that we've got some conservatives and some more progressives and so mm -hmm. it's in that sense it's it's very much an ethnic an immigrant ethnic denomination. And, and so I, and, and so I've actually thought a lot about fundamentalism in, at least in the Christian space and how it works. And, and then hearing what you said about it, I thought there is a, there fundamentalism is a, 
is another aspect of domicide. Mm -hmm. I think and so. this meaning crisis. And now you obviously given your story and there are many many on there are many many out there who have left I mean part of the part of the decline in church in the west is a departure from fundamentalisms because of aspects of fundamentalism that really doesn't work well in a pluralist a hyper pluralist world like we live in that the internet is sort of continuing to fuel not only yeah. do you have sort of the urban cosmopolitan experience that that recognizes the pluralisms around us but now via the internet pluralism nice, is but... just all over the place and and i almost see fundamentalisms as you know getting a definition of fundamentalism isn't easy but then also i think noticing the dynamic of sort of pluralistic shock because nobody we're all raised in these little households we're not raised that we're all raised in little fundamentalist enclaves you sort of we have were. to do that in your developmental process we were we've got the first generation that has been raised completely in front of screens and we're starting to see the effects of that. So that's so not... talk to me a little bit about fundamentalism and how that yeah. if you've done any thinking about how that I have. I have. And yeah, I mean, and so there's two things that sort of bumbling around in me. One is a way in which I was able to feel genuine compassion to my mom. And that opened things up. And I was understanding how she was seeking a kind of absolute purification and fundamentalism provided that for her. And it was her way of trying to earn back a place in the family and in the religion. And and and, and given what had happened to her and how she had been abused, that helped me release some... because. Fundamentalism and, and her were bound up in my mind in that psychodynamic way that kids. Um, and so that that opened things up for me. I've been thinking a lot about it, and I've been thinking a lot about it since you sent me the email. And I've been so I I like I've been trying to understand this. And one way to understand it is perhaps, I mean, I I think there's a couple there's a maybe three things that I don't know if they're poles, but we should talk about them and see if they hang together or not. One is is a reaction to pluralism, yes, and the domicide that come, the potential domicide that comes with it, like the Hellenistic domicide, and because of its first, the first massive pluralism epidemic, if you want to call it that. Yeah. And we, of course, now have globalization, which just and the and the internet and all right. So there's definitely that. Something I think you should you should also mention is, and we know this at least from Christian fundamentalism, it's a response to science in a powerful way the fundamentals were written right and 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 there's a shadow relationship with science there's a rejection of the kind of continual self-correction that it, and instability that is a proper part of science but there's an attraction to which i think is often a misreading but a cartesian interpretation of of somehow certainty is provided and so there's the longing for certainty again as a response to meaning crisis, and there's a weird shadow relationship with science that I think is parasitic on 
the shadow relationship or the sisterhood relationship you've been talking between secularism and, and Christianity. And then there's this third thing, which comes out in particularly with respect to my mom. There's this, and there's two things sort of linked here. So this is more of a psychological, well, there's all psych these are all psychological, but there's this, there's the, the, the sort of the, the, the hyper preference for the purity code. Everything, there's a purity code mentality that is dominant and this is seeking. And, and again, it was only in, even in that conversation, I was understanding why do people pursue purity codes? Well, they pursue purity codes when they are often facing the kind of bleed issues and confounding and confusing issues. They're trying to, it's a, it's a sorting strategy that is trying to reestablish fundamental boundaries, right? That are needed you know, in order to make sense. And and things that bleed between the boundaries, boundaries are properly horrifying. And I've talked about horror. And so purification strategies are often strategies of horror resistance. And I mean that in a philosophical sense. And then that's bound up with, that, that's bound up with a particular envisioning. And it can go one of two ways. There's a profound nostalgia or a profound utopia. So there's fundamentalisms on the right and on the left. I, I don't, I reject, I reject the left move to associate fundamentalism just with the right. I think that's hypocritical and lacking in the self-reflection and self-correction that is a proper mark of proper rationality. So, and, and, the, and that vision, there's something about that vision, right? It, it, there's an, the power of that vision sort of wants to limit interpret the, the 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 freedom of space for interpretation it, the, it, right and, and so authority it becomes really central and the and the and the point of the vision is the vision authorizes or legitimates the authority and then the authority is often the enforcer of the purity code and then the purity code is bound up with the attempt to get but in a shadow way, the certainty of science and and then defend against the threat of the domicide of pluralism. That's my initial take. That, that sounds really helpful. And I, I like how I, I hadn't, you know, it, it's funny because once you say something, it's like, oh, of course. I mean, because that's, that is a key aspect of what we're generally pointing to, especially when we're pointing to in a negative way, fundamentalisms. Yes, that and the pure purity codes are, of course, all about boundaries. Very much, they're about boundaries, and 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 one of the pro one of the bleed problems we have is the bleed, and and of course, you can see Jesus of Nazareth, I think, properly wrestling with this, and you can see the Stoics really wrestling with the Cynics and the Stoics, is confusing purity codes and moral codes. We need both, yes. and they are superficially they look they sort of can feel similar. And, but they're not the same and they're not oriented. And one of the things we're wrestling with both virtuously and viciously in our culture is how do we properly discern the difference and properly relate purity codes and moral codes? And part of what I've come to try and get, you know, and you just said it, and I, I always knew this, but I didn't know it, you know, which is, well, there's a fun, like, don't just reject the fundamentalism. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I will criticize it, but, I'm, but we're talking about, don't just do that sort of like, this complete 
rejection. Try to understand what's the functionality at work in it. Why, yes. like, how was it helping my mother while also harming her? And, and, and part of that is, well, what is the functionality of purity codes? Yeah. I think I, I think the the attempt to, I think it's false, maybe at least inductively. We have tried the project of can we we'll just dispense with all purity codes and we'll just right. all live in, a, in an enlightenment, pure ha 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 ha, pure moral code. And we've realized, no, we, we can't do that. We can't do that. That doesn't work. I'm not saying we should return back to confusing the two. And so we wrestle with issues. Let, let, me, let me try and do so. So I'm going to make myself vulnerable and because I want, to try and, I want to try and show that I'm committed to this existentially, not just intellectually. Okay, I'm going to say something. And initially, it might, and, I, and I, I ask for people to give me the patience to say, listen to everything I'm going to say. Okay. I don't want to see two men having sex. And there's a powerful, listen to my word, disgust reaction come up. That's a purity code thing because of the kind of identity I have and the sexual boundaries I create in order to bring an order, in order to bring an order to my sexual life that I need. That doesn't mean I have a moral criticism. And I, I, I know you may differ with me, but I'm trying to make a point here. I'm talking from my own perspective. I don't confuse that with a moral criticism of homosexuality. Let me give you the exact analogy. They're both dead now, but I do not want to see my parents having sex. But I can't have, look, I can't on pain of self-contradiction have any moral criticism of them having sex because that's how I got here, right? You, like, you, do you see what I mean? Yes. And you have to pull these apart and you have to pull them apart without saying, well, what I can do, we can get rid of this. Part of the Enlightenment project was that all of this is just superstition and we can just dispense with it. And this can be just Kantian, autonomously, rationally justified, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the two problems we have is, right, we, 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 we have problems of bleed and confusion, and we also have problems of exclusion as if, well, we just don't, we, we can live without purity codes. And part of what happened in that sort of emotional moment around my mom that I was sharing is I realized that's just pretentious on my part. I have mm -hmm. my purity codes. I just gave you one. I yep. just gave you one. That's why I expose myself as vulnerable. I have my purity codes. And if I try to destroy them, I will destroy myself. What I have to do is put them into proper proportion, ratio. I have to put them into proper proportion and in proper relationship of discernment, but also relationship to moral codes. That's how I've been struggling with this at a more existential personal level. I hope that was helpful because I really, and please don't jump on me for what I just said 10 minutes ago. I'm trying to make a point here. A couple of things strike me. I mean, purity, purity codes and, and the dynamics of purity are interesting in that like so many things, you can't live without them. And because and part, especially if you're in a, if you're if you're dealing with religion, because religions, mm -hmm. they they deal with the ultimate, and and so the imagery around religions will, at least in my experience, will tend to have to trade in ultimates, and mm -hmm. once you sort of have that ultimate, there's going to be. You, you run the risk of a purity spiral. But you do, and we can talk about that. But 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 on the other end, just to con yep. like, so let me just, I want to, 
I'm trying not to be super technical, but there's modal fallacy. Modal logic deals with possibility and necessity. So what's a modal fallacy? So here's a, okay, so solid objects, solid, solid objects. There is no particular shape a solid object has to have. Do you agree with that? Mm -hmm. But I can't conclude from that that solids don't have a shape. That's a modal fallacy. Does that make mm. sense? Yep. Even though you don't have to have a particular shape, that doesn't mean solids can be shapeless. Right, right. You don't have to have a particular purity code because you look around at pluralism, pluralism, and you're right, you don't. But that you shouldn't do the modal fallacy. That means I can live without a purity code. Right. You see the difference? That's, yep. that's yep. the difference I'm trying to make. Because, so, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, because as you said, right and left, Everyone has some purity codes. I mean, you they 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 just they just they spring up like daisies. <laughs> oh, they're both the left and the right, especially in the United States, but it certainly happened here in Canada. They go through purges because yes. they're enforcing purity codes. Yes. And and and, and and they're and they're and and they're running into and I'm, I don't want to talk about it in depth, but part of what's happening around the rise of anti-Semitism and but supporting the Palestinians and the whole thing is a deep battle between pure purification codes and moral codes. And we're realizing that there's a horrible mess about this. Yeah. A horrible mess. Yeah. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk about the politics. I'm just pointing out. That that is right. What you yeah. said about left and right, and you could see it even within the left and within the right. Not only between the left and the right, but also within the left yes. and the right. Yes. And it also strikes me that both in terms of, say, when I read when I read the Bible, if you read, let's say, the Mosaic Code that you find in Exodus, and people sort of react to the, to that sometimes. But then, so as is so often. If you read a complex text like the Bible, the closer you read it, the more you begin to see the nuances beneath it. And, and actually, Jesus pulls that out with, of course, you have these strange stories where David, for example, is fleeing Saul, and he's hungry. He eats and, the showbread, yeah. That's yeah. right. And of course, Jesus pulls this out and says, what's with that? Yeah. Because David is not a priest. He ought not to eat the showbread, yet the priest gives him the showbread and, you know, David, that, so you've got that story, but then you've got the same, you've got another story in that whole matrix where there, the Ark of the Covenant has been, you know, has been used improperly by Eli's sons in battle against the Philistines as sort of a weapon. And yeah. then it gets captured. And they have all this stuff going on in the Temple of Dagon. Again, these are great Bible story stories for kids. They listen to these like, you know, yeah. Dagon and the statue. And then, of course, they're transporting the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. And it's tottering. Yeah, and they someone... got to put his hand up to st and, he, and he gets killed. And he yeah, gets yeah. killed. And, and so we have all of these stories. So 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 why why can David eat the showbread and not be judged? But yet the, the poor guy who just reached out his hand to, to steady the ark out of, you know, out of seemingly in some ways devotion to God, he certainly meant well, he pays for it with his life. Right. And and I'm not trying to put this in exactly the same category, but I go to save a child. And because of that, inadvertently in front of a whole bunch of people, my pants fall down. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed, regardless of the fact 
well, that's right. I was right. The purity codes have a life and power. I, I, I don't want to impose on the Bible, but part of what's that saying is like, yes, moral codes can sometimes trump purity codes, but purity codes have the new, have a numinous power that also shouldn't be taken for granted. Yeah. And, and, and that means they seem to also at times challenge our moral codes yeah. and they do. And they, and I think they have a very, I like the word you use. I think that there's a very nuanced and sort of ongoing reciprocal reconstruction relationship with them. And like I say, people will often reject a purity code. They adopt a moral code, and then they find a purity code is growing up around their new moral code. You see this when people go through religious conversion. Yes. You see, right? You see this when people give up smoking for le legitimate moral concern, like good health, right? Self-protection, right? But then they become purists and they become antagonists, right? Like it, like all of like, and there's something going on there. And I think it has to do with the fact that, you know, morality is exapted out of purity codes, which are exapted out of biological boundaries. Like it, we're, we live in a continuum and right. It's trying to exclude these from each other is a mistake and trying to identify them with each other is a mistake. And I, I'm, 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 at times I worry that we're losing the kind of discourse that allows for the nuance that will properly proportion our attention and regard for purity codes and, and moral codes. And that, that, that does worry me because that's where fundamentalisms and totalitarianisms also can sort start to grow together in powerful ways. Well, and and in terms of sort of the levels, I was I was using America's experiment of prohibition in the in you know the early part of the 20th century, which is which is something you know it's so interesting to me. You know, we talk about progressives now with a particular political and moral valence on you know different sides of course but the progressive yep. era is was actually a very long thing that involved many uh child labor laws women's suffrage and then one of the things people seldom remember is prohibition, Pro prohibition. yeah because it and, doesn't fit the narrative right right and 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 prohibition was such an interesting experiment because you know if i look at if i if I watch someone who, let's say, has struggled with alcohol and then something happens and it provokes, this time they're going to go to a 12-step program and they're really going to work the program. They're really going to take it seriously. You know, if there's a, I mean, AA is an interesting example because they are they are fundamentalists of sorts. Mm -hmm. And I remember a good friend of mine who was a long, who had, you know, done AA years before I'd met him and and kept his sobriety. You know, eventually he came to church because he, he, you know, the the fundamentalism of AI of AA is that you can go into that meeting and you can tell them absolutely everything. That the one thing that they are really focusing on on is, did you drink? You know, yeah. there's they're smoking like chimneys, they're eating like yeah. crazy, they might be cheating yeah. on their wives. It yeah. doesn't matter. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And, yep. and so yep. you you see. And and these things sort of level up in terms of from individuals then into communities and even into whole societies. And so, you know, the United States of America is, you know, to pass a constitutional amendment in the United States is a is a pretty difficult thing. You need a <laughs> lot of agreement culture-wise. Yeah. And and within the span of about a decade, they both managed to create prohibition and take it down. 
yeah, 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 yeah. And and so to me, when I look at, you know, say the, I mean, Islam almost died at the end of the First World War with the destruction of the Caliphate. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was that is an enormously important thing for that community where. You know, now the end of the First World War, I mean, obviously the Ottoman Empire had been declining and and failing for a long time. And then the caliphate is made illegal. What does a religion do? I mean, talk about domicide. Yeah. yeah. You know, an entire civilization with the and, and this happens. I mean, this happens repeatedly through history, the fall of Constantinople. Well, not only that, when when the Ottoman Empire comes and then Ataturk. Yes. Right and Turkey embraces secularism. Yes. Right in a, in a in a I was going to say in a fundamental way, but maybe that's the right way to say it. Yeah. So yes, continue. Well, and and so, you know, so we sort of run these things up into the big picture, sort of like Plato in the Republic. You know. Yeah. Here, yeah. Here, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're going to run it up, and then we're going to run it down. And we're going to go up and down, and so yeah, the, beautiful. and then when I think about the meaning crisis and. And the way that, let's say, pluralism and nihilism play together, mm-hmm. because I, I think one of the big drivers of of the the collapse of religious communities has clearly been this dynamic between pluralism and nihilism, just back and forth, back and forth between each other, and then leaving people exhausted because they... Yeah. Where are the boundaries? And so then the rea- the 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 very human, let's say even an adaptive, a social adaptive reflex is there are no boundaries. You know, and, yeah. and, and almost it can be an, almost an arbitrary boundary. You know, religion, you know, rigid boundaries. Yes, um, purity codes, and, and, and and they're often put up with that sort of, I don't know what to call it. I don't want to be too insulting, but I need to make a distinction, sort of a pseudo certainty. See, yes. Descartes confuses it, as I was talking to Jordan, Descartes confuses psychological certainty with logical certainty, right? Oh, well, if you can't doubt it, then it's metaphysically necessary. No, you cannot doubt it because you're a racist. You cannot doubt it because you have a failure of imagination. You cannot doubt it because you're ignorant of these real facts that would change. Like, like psychological doubt does not license right sorry sorry psychological indubitability does not license logical necessity or metaphysical necessity and that's a problem and what we can do is we can very much get our we can we can do a kind of reciprocal narrowing especially when in the right environment in which we can get to a place where we are it becomes in frankfurt's terms unthinkable to us like it's unthinkable to me that i could kick jason out i can logically run all the propositions but i can't i can't get into that identity we can get to a place where it's psycholog- we become psychologically incapable of doubting the framework because of the degree of reciprocal narrowing, doubling down, deep identification. And then that gets confused with logical, metaphysical certainty. But we inherited that grammar, I think, ultimately from Descartes. Maybe it goes back earlier, probably into the late Middle Ages. And, and, but clearly that's going on in Descartes. And I think that's also how these walls go up. There's a fundamental, right? There's a fundamental confusion between that psychological indubitability and a metaphysical necessity. Because you see, the second licenses you 
to pronounce to other people. It's like, this is the way it really is. The first doesn't. But if you right. confuse the two, you can get a lot of that. And so, I mean, but on the other hand, you, you go the other way, right? Because one of the things the interaction with the sacred does across religions, in Christ, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, right? And, and, and many, almost all of the religions say, as you approach, approximate the ultimate, you realize those boundaries are not absolute in some important way. But that doesn't mean, like, so Zen makes a distinction between absolute and relative, and Schindler does the same thing with Plato, right? It doesn't mean you come back and destroy the boundaries, right? So when I was doing Zen, rivers were rivers and mountains were mountains. While I was doing Zen, rivers weren't rivers and mountains were mountains. After I was done doing Zen, rivers were rivers and mountains were mountains, but it's different, right? Yeah. And so, and part of what also needs to be acknowledged, and this is also what I what I sort of felt in that, I hope, recognition, appreciation of my mom is there's a lot of things that are idiosyncratically indispensable for people. They have in that they afford them the imaginal. They afford them imagery that allows them to adapt to a situation uh, you know, that has factors beyond their control and has also marked them in ways they can't fully recognize because of trauma and whatnot. And we can't just go into people with sort of moral self-righteousness and say, I'm going to take away your idiosyncratically indispensable thing that gives you imaginal access to your psyche into the world because I think it's not morally justified. It's like you should make moral criticisms when people are doing immoral things. Don't go in and just rip apart their psyches without a deeper understanding of the kind of things. Again, the fact that none of the no no particular set of boundaries may be metaphysically necessary doesn't license the modal confusion that we can live without boundaries. Those don't follow, right? And I I've been trying to understand how do you do this? You don't just want to be just tolerant of anything and everything people are doing, uh, but you do want to. Sorry, I'm, I'm rambling because I, I, I'm struggling because you, you want to say, yeah, I get it. I get it. She had to adopt this purity code around her sexuality. That was like she had an image of sexuality and it wasn't an image she's looking at. In fact, she's it, she's it's very transparent to her. She's not even seeing it. She's only seeing through it, but it allows her to manage. Right. Right. Getting back into her extended family and dealing with the trauma. You can't just take that away from somebody unless you offer them a education in which they willingly participate for something that will replace its functionality. You can't just go in with a moral sledgehammer and say, what you're doing to me, mom, is immoral. You should stop it. It's evil. It doesn't but that doesn't mean you just accept it either. Do you, oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm rambling because I'm struggling. I'm struggling yeah. with you. You're my friend. So you understand what I'm trying to get yeah. at, though. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's very true. And that dynamic is that dynamic is is cultural and social and because and it's interpersonal. And it's not, it's it's you know, for a lot of people. Oh, the imaginal can be shared by groups. Yeah. I yeah. believe in distributed cognition and collective yeah. intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. For yeah. sure. 
there was a there was a there was a little there's a guy on Twitter. He, he goes by the the my sister actually knows him has known him for years. He goes by the the term the naked pastor. I think his name is David Hayward. <laughs> and yeah, because he he like many people, he grew up in a fundamentalist Christian context, became clergy in a context like that, had a deconstruction. His I, I don't know exactly the shape of his sort of went from being an in real life pastor to an online pastor. Yeah, and that'll, and, that'll change it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well then if, if online pastor is actually a thing, which is something that I deeply wrestle with or a thing that can be done, but had a, had a, had a little quote on Twitter from someone else who basically said what deconstruction meant to me was that now when I moved, no one showed up to help me move. Mm. Whereas before, a dozen people showed up to help her move because yep. you lose fellowship. Yeah, you lose fellowship. And so again, sort of back to that fellowship question. One of the things I think it's again, it's sort of an, an adaptive element to fundamentalisms. Fundamentalisms can create containers that afford fellowship. Now there are that, that that becomes a very dicey proposition because in many cases, the terms of fellowship are strictly tied up with those fundamentalisms. And authority and- the, Yes, the, and all the of ongoing, those things you put in. Yeah, yeah, the authority and the pseudo-certainty and, and, and the always justifying vision that has licensed a lot of, and let's be frank, abuse yep. within these contexts as well. Yep. But, but notice, let's move it to a secular context. The United States- Canada to a much lesser degree, United States, parts of Europe are wrestling with purity code versus moral code about their boundaries. Countries have to maintain their boundaries or they cease being countries. That's a purity code, right? And they just want to live because that's what countries are, right? But there's moral codes about, yeah, but those people are suffering and if we don't let them in, they'll die. And so we're trying to say, and that's the struggle. You're, that's And that's a completely secular, although tremendously re religiously impassioned yep. debate because yep. it's like, well, we have to have a purity code about our country or our country will dissolve. Yep. Oh, but, but look at these people that are suffering. And if we don't let them in, we're immoral. And we're, ra and you, you, again, the United States always does what anywhere else in the world is wrestling with. The United States does it on meth or something. But yeah, but I'm, I'm just saying that that's, that that's, that's an that's a purely secular, notice what I'm doing, right? Version of exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. And yeah. people don't see it. That that's exact and so what and and, and there it's it reminds me of Jesus' parable where if you land on any one of the narrative poles, you've misunderstood it in some way. It's it's just really situating yourself in that tonos, that tension is what where you have to be, right? Or you lose your humanity. In in, yeah. in 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 really important ways. Sorry, well, I just wanted to bring that up because I think that's another version of the very very dynamic we're talking about. Well, exactly. And so fundamentalisms arise. So one fundamentalism is build a wall. We're gonna yes. let no one in. I mean, Japan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one, <laughs> yeah. Even if we die of childlessness here, we will let no one in. Yes. And the other is, you know, no borders at all, borderlessness, and and so these. Fundamentalisms arise, but the fundamentalisms themselves then give shape to, you know, one of the things that I'm, you know, 
Now, four years into this, I continue to ponder this, you know, the relevance realization, how in some ways the the bias, and I'm, I'm going to put this in, probably hack it all up in layman's terms like I usually do with your stuff. <laughs> you know, on one hand, our biases and our filters, I mean, we, we need- They're these, indispensable. They're indispensable. And they cut both ways. Yeah. And you can't live with them and you can't live without them. And here we are. The biases- which are also heuristics. Yep. That's why you should have to understand them. They are very much the purity code that makes the autopoiesis of cognition possible. But you have to be able to stand outside of them from a moral, meaning a normative, the true, the good, and the beautiful stance to correct. But that correction can't destroy the filters. Yeah. It always has to ameliorate them. And this, of course, is the challenge of wisdom. And 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 our human proclivity is we want a simplistic narrative path to wisdom. Yeah. Too bad, right? Sorry, doesn't work, right? Because you can't throw away those biases. You're not functional, but you can't simply you know acquiesce in them because then you will never come to moral maturity. And I also mean epistemic moral maturity, right? Yeah. You will you will not be properly pursuing the true, the good, and the beautiful. And you are, this is Hegel's point, Kant's point. This is what was right about that whole line. You are not just an animal moved by desires. You are a person motivated by commitments to normativity, commitments to the true, the good, and the beautiful. You can't abandon that without abandoning your personhood. And so we're caught between an animal that can't live without biases and personhood that demands that we right commit ourselves to the true, the good, and beautiful. And we can't let the moral destroy this, the purity codes of the mind, because we will destroy ourselves. But we can't let this undermine. And so this is why I love Plato. We are bound to finite transcendence. We cannot, we always have to hold the two together at all times. So how talk to me about with this, because one of the things that strikes me is that the dynamic of the Silk Road. Yeah. or in Lewis's case, the dynamic of the hallways is in some sense helpful in, you can, uh, there, you, you have to afford fundamentalisms, it seems to me, because that they, they simply will arise, but the, in, in some ways, the fundamentalisms are in the rooms. Yeah. Well, and, fundamentalism is when you Let's play with it. Let's play with yeah. it a bit. I'll, I'll propose to you that fundamentalism is when you close the door to the room because you need some privacy for some reason. Because you're you need to you yep. need to do that. Yep. Now, we we know it's unhealthy for people to live in rooms in which the doors are never opened, but it's also yes. unhealthy if you never get your privacy. Yes. And yes. for me, right, this is part, and this is why Tillich is going. Tillich is sort of one of the people that sort of pushed me into the Silk Road because he proposed the God beyond the God of theism, right? It, but this is, this is right, the individuation participation, right? And individuation can also be for a group. It doesn't just have to be for the... So individuation and participation is a nested function. It can be within between the individual and a group. It can be between this group and the larger world, et cetera. And yeah, there, there's again... You need people have to they have to step back with into the room and look at right the filters and wow, this is who we are and this is what we are, right? And then they have to go, step through and go out. And they have to be open to acknowledging what I think is a unavoidable historical 
fact. <laughs> wow, I don't usually talk that way. Judaism changes when Christianity is born. Christianity changes when Islam is born. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam change when Aristotelian science comes in. That whole change changes when Newtonian science comes. You yeah. see what I'm doing here? Yeah. Yeah. Right? The pretense that they don't that, that there's right, that the advent, these advents of new ways of relationship to the sacred don't reverberate back within the homes is pretentious. That's yeah. not what's happened historically. Yeah. That's not what happened historically. Yeah. Well, and all oh, this stuff is so So what I'm hoping, sorry, this no go. I just want to make clear. I, I'm hoping in answer to your question that the Silk Road, right, will allow people when they it's like it's like Tolkien's theory of recovery. When people return back into the room and close the door as they do need to, they are nevertheless going to recover it in a way that's transformative, the way Judaism was transformed with the birth of Christianity and Christianity was transformed with the birth of Islam. Yeah. That's what that's what I'm proposing. Where does secularity fit into this mix? Secularity was a stealing of the culture all around the world. And we're starting to see this now with, of course, Modi dedicating the new temple to Ram in India, the and Hagia there's, Sophia. There's a backlash. Yeah, there's a backlash to secularism, yes. Yeah, and so, and, and backlashes are, back, backlashes are, are complex things because sometimes they can be corrections. Sometimes yes. they can be just reactions. And and we uh, we seldom know, we, we seldom know, <laughs> We seldom know for until far past our lifetimes. Well, I want to respond because this is another tonos, another tension. And this is between two notions within sort of the philosophy of law, between substantive justice and procedural justice, right? And substantive justice is that which constitutes justice in the sense of, you know, that's a just thing. And so there are things we pursue as a, as a society that we think are substantially just, like, you know, we want to re reduce suffering or something like that. Procedural justice is, yeah, but what you want is you want the processes by which you're trying to achieve your substantial gains to always be really self-correcting. And one of the things that secularity did well, to my mind, is pull those two apart and mm. say, we can commit to different pursuits of substantial justice in our society. But what will hold us together is we will all prioritize over our homed pursuits of substantial justice. We will pursue a commitment to procedural justice. We will all say that you can pursue your Christianity, I can pursue what I'm doing, but if we come into conflict, we will all go to this place that allows to tell you or me how we behave mm -hmm. in the public sphere, because we're commitment. We're this space is committed to procedural justice, and one of the things that a centrist is committed to is preserving the importance of procedural justice. And what I, one of the things I'm again worried about is I see the left and the right undermining procedural justice yeah. at the because of the elevation of substantive justice, yeah. and so. What was gained in secularity, and I think that was part of what was going on with the separation of church and state. In the church, you will pursue your substantive justice. In the state, we will have procedural justice enshrined, and we won't confuse these two together, and we'll 
try to demark and we'll try to prevent undue interference, but everybody, all the different church homes will share the same procedural justice. Yeah. And that has that held things together in a certain way. And of course the Civil War sprung up when the commitment to procedural justice was undermined both by the North and the South for the res their respective visions of substantive justice. Yeah. I'm not saying the Civil War shouldn't have happened. Slavery was evil. But I'm saying what happens is when you lose that commitment, you open yourself up to civil war. And I think that's what's happening right now. Both the left and the right are undermining uh, the commitment to procedural justice. Like I am, I, I, like, I don't think free speech should be curtailed because I believe in dialectic and dialogos only under only under very extreme circumstances, yeah. right? People calling to violence, shouting fire in a theater, all that sort of yeah. stuff, right? Like where there, there's clear, overwhelming, massive harm. And that's a commitment to procedural justice. And we are undermining that in a very significant way. For all my many disagreements with Jordan, I, and, and he's he's often voiced this in a way that I consider flawed, but I still admire the fact that he's trying to, he has been at times trying to say, if we don't have this kind of procedural justice, things will breed in the dark. And I think that's what he's pointing to. So there's a long way of saying there is something very valuable because we've been talking about discernment. It comes to my mind that yep. that's been a thread, a through line running through everything. Yep. There's a proper discernment between procedural and substantial justice that secularism gave us. I don't think we should ever let that go, that commitment to a wise discernment of the difference and the proper proportioning of them. And so that's a role I think secularism has for us. I don't think that means that we have I don't think that separation of procedural and substantive justice maps on, as the Enlightenment perhaps proposed it does, the distinction between the sacred and the profane or the numinous and the mundane. I don't think it maps on that way. Hmm. Hmm. I think the procedural domain was filled with all kinds of right sacralization. Yeah. Your honor, the yes. podium, yes. the gavel, yes. right? the, 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 like, the, it's filled with the sacred right right well the, 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 uh, go ahead go ahead I'll, well walk to washington dc you're yes. right those are temples to procedural justice and, and 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 that's because procedural justice deserves to be have a sacred pole to it as much as substantive justice does yeah, yeah. so it's in, it's interesting too how I, I wonder what you think about how this maps onto the struggles with science because in many ways, the scientific method was also a question of procedure. It is. It. it I think that's an excellent mapping, and, and I'm glad you do that because that's the mapping I want. So thank you. It's like, well, science is about there's a procedural justice for our epistemic virtue that has to be given a kind of authority for all of us. Each of us has our own commitments, our, our own theories that we home in on. I, I'm using that in a double sense we home in on right and but what we do is we all commit to right we make sacrosanct in a very important way this procedural justice now that can be turned into an idolatry of the scientific method there isn't such a thing there are scientific methods and they're in this weird family relationship with each other if you do any history and philosophy of science so right but but there was exactly that and it was like yes we're after truth 
right? But it has to be properly justified by a process that we are trying to keep as self-correcting as it possibly can be. Now, of course, this has been undermined. And again, because the lines have blurred, there's a lot of lo loss of discernment. And, and, and I, I am particularly upset when people identify as research activists, because that is a blurring between the pursuit, as they should, of particular substantial justice. Yes, it is, it is important that we get rid of racism. That is that's a substantive justice that we should pursue. Don't let that undermine the procedural justice of how we do science, in which we step aside from those commitments because we know they're biasing and we are exposing ourselves because we're holding it sacred that this to this self-corrective process. Yes, yes. No, that's, that's really helpful. That's really helpful. And it's interesting to me too how when I think about modernity how both of those both it's just very interesting how both of these things sort of emerge and and came together in many ways to form the modern world yes and how now at this point we see sort of this recession we see we see this this element now tried and it's in both it's in both areas well, because I mean, we 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 had the Enlightenment was a prioritization of procedural justice over substantive justice because yeah. things have been out of whack the other way. Yeah. But and part of what deconstructionism is doing, especially the Derridinian and Foucaultian versions of it, is they have criticized how procedural justice has been used to smuggle in substantial justice pro projects without proper acknowledgement and recognition. And that critique needs to be taken seriously. This is one way in which I differ significantly from Jordan Peterson. I think the postmodernist, well, at least the two that I've read deeply, Derrida and Foucault, have a legitimate and profound point that needs to be acknowledged. And, and, you know, and they're also talking about purity codes and moral codes. They're not using this language, but that's a lot of what's going on in that critique and that needs to be taken into account it's like yeah we were we 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 smuggled in the so-called procedural justice of the law to enforce segregation right and yeah. we did it and the civil rights movement was no 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 right the procedural justice has to readjust because we have to acknowledge that this is wrong, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Yep. You know I'm doing this. There's an opponent process relationship yes. between them. Yes. And we're also doing, we're always doing an evolving optimal grip to try and find the specific sweet spot that exists at that time. Yeah. And it, it's interesting, just one last thing, and I know we're running out of time, and then I want to give you a chance if there's anything you want to bring up. But, you know, this... To me, your optimal grip and sort of my concept of dead reckoning, it's very interesting how as we go through long periods of time, you know, I see this in, in individual lives in terms of when people say either either reject or relinquish or, or get rid of a, a religion and adopt a new one, how we in in our, you know, in our relevance realization because that's what we're doing how we sort of say oh this this script is this script is more optimal than the other one i mean it, it's a very 
most people bring, come at it with a very intuitive sense. They can't, you can push them on it. You can explore it with them. And usually as a pastor, it, you might it, do some of that. A therapist does, but. It is. And then what happens is people confuse the language of training by which that optimal grip is trained, hmm. which often involves idiosyncratic, indispensable, imaginal practices with they've discovered the metaphysical necessities that explain reality. That hmm. often happens. And um, and that is, again, problematic uh, because it's, yes, um, you do have a better optimal grip. And, this, and, and I want to give proper recognition. I want to put back to you that your finesse argument is an optimal grip argument. Yes, yes, very much, yes. Right. Yes. Right. Right. And and then, but the thing about optimal grip, and this, and I, I, you might push back on this, is optimal grip is environmentally dependent. You can't a priori because right. the trade-off relationships between bias and variance, explore exploit, cannot be decided by an a priori algorithm. They have to always be co-created with the environment, the emergence of affordances, blah 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 blah. Lots of verbaki fancy words and terms, blah 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 blah. Right. And then the point is, so within this environment, right, and this is this is part of how I'm wrestling with it. There, let's say there are indispensable idiosyncratic imaginal practices that finesse your relationship with ultimacy so it's not only ultimate it's transformative and it puts you in touch with the really real and it does all of that and it gives you a powerful language of training but the coach Mick Winkleman that's telling the person how to run better and says I want you to start running as if you're a jet airplane and then as if you're running up a hill Right, that's imaginal and it's indispensable, but that's not right. The, how that how you're being trained is not a good explanation of what's actually happening when you're running, right? And so, a pluralism as opposed to relativism says you can have, and this is the thin but strong. There are universal principles and processes, right, between these various environmentally finessed optimal grips. And you shouldn't go in and just sabotage that and say, well, look, that doesn't, it's like, yeah, that's like saying the person, right, who's in the football arena shouldn't be using their football skills. That doesn't make any sense. Now, what you can criticize them is if they try and play their football skills in their marriage, or for me, try to take their professor or their role as a professor into their romantic relationship. That's a disaster, right? That's, 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 that's self-deception at the level of participatory knowing. And so... A pluralism says you can always use the through line, the universal processes and principles to tell people where they are misplacing, if, I, if you'll allow me that term. But that doesn't allow you to make the modal fallacy of saying we can eradicate all the places. Right. Now, I know you don't fully agree with that argument, but that's the argument I'm yeah. making. Yeah, no, I, I understand. The, the difficulty that we have is... Part of the big shift that I have seen with this little corner, with Jonathan, with Jordan, with you, is there, there's a weird there's a weird dynamic with skepticism in that, to a certain degree, skepticism is sort of a luxury belief. <laughs> yeah, it is and it isn't. Yes, I mean, exactly. Uh, because, I mean, let's remember... 
the skeptic skepticism originally means inquiry mm-hmm. and skepticism is i think properly understood as an em- as emphasizing epistemic procedural justice yes you need to always be doing this self correction because now I'll sound like the buddha with the first noble truth there is nowhere where you are free from dukkha there is nowhere where you are free from dukkha right and that's that's correct but the skeptic can then conclude something like a modal fallacy well what i will do is i will try and find a place where i am free from having to engage in that self correction i will misunderstand the self corrective process as leading me to the place that is perfectly beyond all these doubts and concerns and of course that's the hallmark of that is descartes right and it's like nope that doesn't work that doesn't work that doesn't work and that's why i like schellingberg his uh, notion of evolutionary religion when you take the big time view is he says you become skeptical of any particular thing but he says that opens you up to a, a much more proper imaginal relationship with the transcendent skepticism right just tells you to give up understanding your relationship as primarily belief centric and you and i differ on this but this is part of the critique and it's much more and to be fair he's got a whole bunch of people there's all this there's this huge philosophical movement of trying to understand what's called non-believing faith where you don't try and understand faith as some kind of variation on belief and then he says skepticism if properly understood breaks up and i think that might be where procedural and substantive justice have been confused and in fundamentalism it breaks them up and what that does is it allows you to explore imaginal and therefore powerful non-belief centric notions of faith that's what he actually argues and proposes and he says that is a skeptical attitude in that it is an ongoing evolving optimal grip relationship to the sacred right and and it reminds me of lewis's of lewis's point about basically a point about deconstruction he didn't use those terms is that you're you're always employing this basically because you believe there is actually some place to get to yes and yeah. and and they kind of did yeah and so did hume Hume wanted to be the newton of the psyche <laughs> and and the you know the challenge of course we face is that in this world none of us really finally get there i mean that then is the tension with the fundamentalisms and the purities we we don't yeah. we don't arrive here and then the question is do we ever right and think about that let's put it into proper thing and this is the problem with the the, the nostalgia and the utopia we never get back even though the beatles made a great song we never get back right and we never get to the utopia every time we think we're getting close it turns into a dystopia and that is not a coincidence right but that's a, but there's a relationship yet with i mean one of the things that we could talk about sometime is i i looked at you know i yeah, I this, nostalgia for me was a had a very negative valence. I you know uh, nostalgia kitsch blah 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 blah. And then Clay Rutledge, I don't know if you've looked into any of his yep, work yep, at all. Yep, yep, yep. And I thought, oh, but there, but there again, it's sort of like fundamentalism. It's like there's 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 a reason nostalgias hang around. They're 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 fulfilling a function that. And I think, and I've been doing a deep dive into Hegel with my good friend Chappie, and I think there's a reason for that, and especially the Brandom and Pinkard interpretation of Hegel, which tries to replace a lot of 
what is has been understood as sort of arcane metaphysics with the processes of distributed cognition, both synchronically and diachronically, mm. around rationality, which is this question of how do you get, how do people get the authority to make rational claims, right? Because if they are relying on arguments from authority, it doesn't work. So how does it, and part of what Hegel's argument is, Hegel is the, but the idea is we are all, think about a judge trying to make a judgment. They always are paying attention to precedent, but they're always also trying to set precedent. They are making an appeal mm. to their ancestors and they are making an appeal to their descendants that that's the diachronic and they're always and they're also making an appeal synchronically to their community and so nostalgia is we make an appeal to our ancestors utopia is we make an appeal to our descendants yeah. and then of course fellowship is the appeal at, at the synchrony and and as you may expect while well, like hegel is he says these are always doing this with each other right mm -hmm. they're always playing against and if you try and stabilize it you will actually undermine Geist. You will actually undermine that ongoing process by which, right, we, we the, the the distributed cognition creates a way of life, and then the way of life collapses under its own terms of evaluation and a, a new way of life, et cetera, et cetera. So is, is Hegel the great is was Hegel the great philosopher of opponent processing? I think so. I think one of the things that Dan has convinced me of. And with the help of Brandom and Pinkard and Fornath and this whole revolution that's happening around Hegel is that Hegel's dialectic is a, a proper development from the Platonic dialectic. I used to set mm. them in as opposites to each other, but the Hegelian dialectic is an attempt to take the dialectic into dialogos that I explored and after Socrates and extend it to the biggest possible geist collective intelligence of distributed cognition because that is the thing that best grocks reality and that we should give the most authority to while always understanding that it itself has to be open to self-correction that's sort of the hegelian proposal as i'm trying to understand it via the ongoing deep work with my deep friend dan chiappi we're, we're writing a book together called the being of rationality and the rationality of being. And so, yeah, I think so. I think that's a, a proper way of understanding Hegel. Hegel is asking the question, how do you get authority for rationality without undermining the procedural justice of rationality? Hmm. Hmm. Well, sounds fruitful. We are, we are, we're closing in on our heart yeah. out. Any Anything, the Silk Road project sounds very interesting. It sounds very ambitious. And 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 I, and I so that's why there's a lot of planning with a lot of people and a lot of time and talent going into it. Yeah. It is also my attempt to exemplify this, how a distributed cognition has to grok, grok a hyper object and no one individual can. Beautiful. Maybe that's a good place to land the plane. It is. It's been wonderful. It's always great to talk to you, John. I'll stop the recording. <laughs>